Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, good morning. It's, it's great to see all of you here, out here on a hot, hot summer morning. And... Uh, Really do appreciate you making the effort to be here. There's obviously always lots of other things that you could choose to do on a Sunday morning. And so it's really good to see you here. I'm encouraged by it. Those of you who are joining us online as well, we always like to have you there. And those who are listening on the podcast, and we trust in God to speak to us here today. Well, imagine this with me. Imagine that, say it's tonight, you're home, the house gets quiet, and, and you find yourself by yourself. If, if, you, if there's other people in the house, you find yourself by yourself someplace, and everybody else has gone to bed. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in front of you. And, and you know it's him, right? I mean, because when he shows up, you know it's him. <laughs> And it's so clear to you, this hymn, and you're, you're kind of overwhelmed with this, and Jesus, you know, says, hey, ask me for something. Tell me, what would you like me to give you? Just go ahead and ask. And you're thinking, anything? He says, yeah, just, but it's for you. So what do you want? Don't ask me for world peace, <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's a good thing, but I want to know for you, what, can, what do you want for you? What would you say? What do you want for you? You know, would you be real spiritual, you know, and come up with some answer about, you know, how you live your life as a Christian? Or would you think, you know, well, give me good health, until, you know, health issues? Or, or would you be as shallow as saying, uh, how about a bright yellow 1974 Corvette? But seriously, think about it. What would you say if Jesus said, yes, just tell me, what do you want me to give you? Well, there's a man in our Bible who experienced that with God. King Solomon, he was David's son, King David's son. He becomes king uh, over this united kingdom now. and, And God shows up to him and says to Solomon, he says, ask, what shall I give you? What, what do you want? And Solomon said, God, you have made me king over your people. And, and your people are so important to you, and they are important to me. And, and God, I have a little experience here. I don't know all that I need to know. I, I don't know how to respond and to, to lead your people the way that you want them to be led. So God, I ask you, to give me wisdom, to give me wisdom. And God was so, you read it, it's almost like God is overjoyed by Solomon's request. And God says, hey, because you you didn't ask for riches and you didn't ask for honor and and, uh, power and fame, you didn't ask for that stuff. Instead, you asked for wisdom, Solomon. And so I'm gonna give you wisdom. But you know what else I'm gonna do? I'm gonna give you riches, and I'm gonna give you honor, 
and I'm going to give you fame. And you're going to be a testimony for me. And so God is overjoyed about that. And, and I think, why, why is God so overjoyed about that? Because God said, ask whatever you want, right? God, ask him. And what we're going to do is I'll, I'll come back to probably why God was so overjoyed about this at the end of the sermon, okay? And if I try to end the sermon and dismiss you without telling you, would you somebody interrupt me and say, wait, wait, wait? Okay. But so God gave Solomon wisdom. We're told that he became the wisest man on earth. Uh, and he, he understood so many things. And people came from all over the world to hear him and talk to him. And we have in our Bibles the fruit of God's answers to his prayer in the book of Proverbs. Today is July 1st. And so we are going to look at chapter 1 today. Chapter one of Proverbs, and you'll find it on page 725 if you want to go ahead and turn there in the Bibles that are in the chairs. Um, and we do encourage you to follow along in the Bible. We think it's very helpful for you. Um, so this chapter really has three sections to it. The first section is where Solomon says, hey, here's, here's what um, pro the, this, this book is going to do for you. Here's what it can do for you and, and how something you need to do to make that happen. In the second section, he, he really starts applying, saying, look, here's, here's what it looks like and some things you need to be uh, avoid as you pursue wisdom here. And then finally, he says, the last section is about how available wisdom is and the folly of not choosing wisdom, okay? We're only gonna have time for that first section today. So Proverbs chapter one. And let's start reading in verse number one. So the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And so here's where Solomon now says, here's what this book is about. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So let's just go back and walk our way through this a little bit here. So he says, the very first thing is to know wisdom. And, and this word wisdom here really is the big word, the overarching word that kind of encompasses everything else that he's going to talk about here. Uh, it's, 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 it's one of those Hebrew words that come from this. Hachma. Those words are always fun, right? Hachma. Hachma. And it's often uh, people will say, well, it means you know, skillful at living, and it is that way, but I really think it's something bigger than that. Based on what, what God is saying here, that God's wisdom, excuse me, the wisdom that God gives is when he enables us to see the world the same way he does. And by the way, he sees it the way it really is. <laughs> and so when we get his wisdom, we begin to see things the way he sees them. We begin to understand things the way he understands them. And, and so that's huge, uh, the wisdom, wisdom from God. Next word is instruction. 
And this is detailed information about how to do things. So as we get in this book, we're gonna learn there's some things that you need to think about and make sure that you do. And the Hebrew word here uh, that it's translated from sometimes includes the idea of correction or chastisement even. So he says, I'm gonna give you some instructions that may go against what you already do or what you naturally do, okay? So instructions to perceive the words of understanding. Understanding is being able to, to comprehend the, uh, the situation, sort of a, a big picture kind of thing to, to understand the ins and outs of what's going on in a situation. And then he says to receive the instruction of wisdom. This word wisdom, again, it's a different word for wisdom. Uh, uh, it's rightfully translated wisdom, but I would have probably chosen a different word. But it's the idea of being circumspect. In other words, being able to uh, look at a situation and say, okay, you know, I, I see what's going on here and th these are the ramifications of what's happening, okay? So there's an awareness that what's going on here goes somewhere, right? This is headed somewhere, and so being able to understand, that's what that word wisdom means. And then we have this trio of words that really go together to receive the instruction of justice, judgment, and equity. Now justice is the idea of understanding what is right and what is wrong. What is morally right, what is morally wrong. Those are the principles of justice. And so he says, this is part of what God is gonna give you when you get his wisdom. The ability to say, wait a minute, this is right, this is wrong. Okay, and then the next word, judgment, very closely related to justice, and what judgment is the ability to take justice, this is right, this is wrong, and then to be able to apply it to the situation at hand. It's like if a judge is sitting listening to a case and then he has to reach a verdict. He understands the principles of justice, the laws, and then he has to decide how does that apply in this situation, okay? So that's what judgment is. And now equity is a really interesting word. Uh, it has the idea of evenness, um, of treating everyone in a situation equally. Equally doesn't always mean the same, but it's equally with respect to what's going on, what's fair and right. And equity is, okay, so we have justice and the principles, right and wrong, and judgment is, trying, is, is applying those principles to these circumstances. There are circumstances in life where there is no specific principle of justice that applies to that. So what do we do when that's the case? Well, he says that God, in his word here, with wisdom, will give us equity, where we are able to look at situations where there is no you know, hard and fast principle of right and wrong and figure out well, what's the right thing to do here. How do we deal with this issue in a way that does right by everybody? involved, okay? So very, very important quality, because you notice a lot of life isn't always just right and wrong. It's a lot of life that we have to figure out, and so equity is important for that. And then it says to give prudence to the simple. The simple, don't think simple-minded, because that comes across really negative, okay? But when we're talking about someone who's simple, we're talking about somebody who tends to look at things just at face value and, and doesn't see beyond what's just on the surface. And so he says, we're going to give prudence to this person, because what this does, it, uh, a prudence is the idea of being able to look at a situation and evaluate it and understand what are the dangers here? What are the risks here? 
in this situation, okay? Very important thing, I mean, how many people do you know who have made terrible decisions because they never saw the risks? They didn't take the dangers into account. And so it says he'll give us prudence in this. And then to the young man, and a young man would be someone who's just inexperienced, doesn't have the life experience yet, to give to the young man knowledge and discretion, two things for him. One is knowledge, and that's just the information that he needs in order to be able to succeed. And the reality is, is we all find ourselves at places in life and time and time where we don't have any experience, right? And we need information, we need knowledge in order to figure out how do we do this. And he says, this book will help you to have that knowledge that you need. And then discretion. And, and discretion is being able to, uh, uh, again, evaluate uh, a situation and see what's going on and then be able to devise a plan to respond to it. That's what discretion is. Okay, here's what's going on. So here's, I see this. I say, okay, here's what I think needs to happen. That's what it is. So a young man without experience, information he needs to succeed, and then the ability to devise a plan to go forward. By the way, do you think, could you use any of these things? And God says this is available to us. This is what this book is about, and of course, even beyond the pages of Proverbs. And he continues, he says, a wise man will hear and increase learning. I think one of the, the most evident um, characteristics of true wisdom is a truly wise man or woman is teachable. You ever run into somebody who's not teachable? I mean, they always know if they, they know, and they don't want to hear what you have to say, you have a conversation, it's like, the, no. Oh, when he says that you're going to get the kind of wisdom that will help you to stay teachable. Because if you stay teachable, God can work in your life in great ways, and if you become hardened, then we got a different thing going on. So a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. All right, so this, you get this wisdom and understanding. You, you say, I need more wisdom, I need counsel here. I need the, the counsel of wisdom. And so he will do what it takes to get that. He'll, he'll pay the price to get that. In fact, that word attain there literally includes the idea of, of making a purchase. In other words, someone who's genuinely wise and understanding understands the value of wisdom to the point where he or she is willing to even purchase it if necessary. It is that important. All right, then it comes down here, uh, verse number six. Interesting uh, things here. It says, to understand uh, is what you're going to gain as you go through uh, the, the book of Proverbs and become open to wisdom and then that expands, I think, into all the word of God. But he says this, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So he says there are three kinds of statements that we are going to find in the book of Proverbs. And the first one is a proverb. Now how about that, okay? It is a proverb, and what is a proverb? Well, a proverb is an interesting, catchy statement, often metaphorical in nature or a simile, so it's comparing one thing to another, right? Okay, so in, like see this in this situation, we'll see that we gain some wisdom for this situation over here. An example of this 
is in chapter 14 and verse four where it says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. All right, so what's, what's this telling us? It's a simile, isn't it, or a metaphor. And, and the idea is that, yeah, if, if, if you don't want a mess, don't have an ox. But if you want to get something done, have an ox and live with the mess, right? In other words, there's gonna be a mess going along with getting this stuff done. And so life is a lot like that, yeah. You can do your best to remove every difficult and every inconvenience in your life, and what will you be doing? Probably sitting at home in the dark. But if you're gonna go out and do something, there's gonna be some mess that comes with that and be willing to accept the mess. All right, the next kind of statement he talks about is an enigma, an enigma. It's a really interesting word. Um, and, and just to make it simple, it, it, we're gonna describe it as a statement that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. Well, why would God put that in there? Why doesn't he just make it all simple and easy, right? Well, because this enigma, and in a little bit we're gonna see the riddles, it's because there are things that you learn by trying to figure things out that you would never learn if you were just told the whole thing up front. Do you, do you see in life that there are times and things that you only learn by experiencing, by going through them? True? And somebody could have tried to tell you, I got one for you right now, right? Before you got married, did anybody ever explain to you what marriage was like? And they probably told you truth. But the reality is what? You had to work through that. You had to struggle sometimes. You had to figure things out. And sometimes you can't figure things out. But you're working and you're wrestling through. Well, he says that, that there are some things, some statements that we're gonna find in scripture that are kind of like that, that, that it's not just clear to us. And what God wants us to do at those times is to think about them, ponder them, meditate on them, try to figure them out. Well, maybe the, and in that process, we grow. It changes the way we think, changes our hearts. And so an example, a couple of examples of enigmas, I think, in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 10 and verse 15, it says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. And you think, okay, what does that really mean here? It doesn't sound like something that God would say. Wouldn't he encourage the poor? So why would he say the destruction of the poor is their poverty? What's going on here? Well, this sermon isn't about this, but I think that he's telling us here that he's talking about the way people look at their situation. A man who has a lot of money does what? Has a tendency to do what? Trust in his wealth. His, his riches are his strong city. He trusts in it. In, in uh, the first Timothy, I think God says, don't trust in it. But that's the people's tendency. And then he says the destruction of the poor is their poverty. And it doesn't have to destroy them, but how do they see it? What is my whole problem? What, is the, what causes all the problems in my life? It's my poverty. Well, that's not true. Okay, poverty can be a problem. 
But there are lots of other things besides that. So you see, he's talking about how they see it. Another example in chapter 13, verse 8 says, The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. Say, what? <laughs> right? I mean, we on the face, well, maybe it's okay. So would you like to know what this one means? Talk to me afterwards. Okay, because we don't have time to keep drilling down. Next kind of statement, he says the riddles, the riddles of the wise. And, and riddles are, are just very literally translated as, as a verbal knot or puzzle with a moral point. Okay? Uh, example, two verses, one go right after the other. The first one is this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Immediately followed by, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, which is it? See, we have a verbal nod or a puzzle here, but it's trying to teach us something about dealing with a fool. Okay? And so, the benefit of these particular, the Proverbs are, are intended to, again, to just to, oh yeah, challenge us and be catchy and get us to think about things. Enigmas and riddles are designed to make us really have to ponder and think over time about things. And that grows us in, in ways that we would not otherwise grow. So all of these things, he says that he intends to give to us through this book, wisdom, instruction, understanding, uh, circumspection, justice, judgment, equity, prudence, knowledge, and discretion. And then learning them through proverbs and enigmas and riddles. And, and the end result is that we begin to see the world more and more the way God sees the world. Is that a good thing? How important is that? Do you need wisdom? Do you? Are you convinced? All right. If you're convinced you need wisdom, then this next verse is crucial to you. Verse 7 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think we could put the fear of the Lord as the beginning of any of those words in there. The fear of the Lord is the starting point. Now, I think this is a little bit of an enigma to us, this whole idea of the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? What is this about, the fear of the Lord, and how do I do that? And, and what does it mean? What does it not mean? Um, but I think something that we can get right here up front before we figure all of that out is this. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, the focus is the Lord, isn't it? And how we are interacting with him. And that's this, that you can't get wisdom right if you don't get God right. You're not going to be able to see the world the way God says it is, the way it really is, if you don't really know who God is and what he's like. And so getting God right starts with properly fearing 
Now, we might say, well, this doesn't sound like Christianity. As I remembered, I thought God is a God of love. Why would we be afraid of him? He's good. He gives us his grace. Uh, he cares about us. All these things, right? True statements. But so what's the deal about fearing God? We're supposed to be afraid of God? Well, let's, let's step back a little ways, okay, to a, a more basic level of information and understand this, that there is good reason for human beings to be afraid of the Lord. There's good reason for that, okay? First of all, he is the all-powerful creator, able to do anything that he chooses to do. He's the one who brought the entire universe into existence all the way down to the tiniest details of the things that you experience in life. He brought all this into existence, just spoke it into existence. Could he speak it out of existence? Could he speak it into a different kind of existence? He can do anything that he chooses to do. Now, the next thing you need to understand is that he is the holy judge of all sin and everyone who sins. He's holy. He is not, uh, has no pull towards sin. There's no sin in him. Nothing like that. And yet he is the holy judge of all sin and everyone who sins. Talk about how holy God is. At one point, Moses, as he was interacting with God on the mountain, said, oh God, could you show me your glory? I want to see you. You know, Moses, I think, was probably looking for some extra inspiration to go do what he had to do. I want to see you. And God said this to him. He says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. God is so holy that if a human being just were suddenly in this fullness of his presence, it's all over with. That's how holy he is. He's so holy that he created in the very beginning four creatures. Now, Revelation describes it like this, that the four living creatures do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and on and on and on. Since the time he created them, still going on today, and this verse is in Revelation, when we're all in heaven someday, still going on. How holy is God? You see, they haven't declared it enough. And he is this holy one who will judge sin. And that, uh, his holiness is the standard. This is, uh, it says both in Leviticus and in 1 Peter, you shall be holy for I am holy. All right, my holiness is the standard, God says. And then he says in Hebrews, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't have this holiness, if you don't measure up to this standard of God and his holiness, you'll never see the Lord. Now, man, that we are getting in trouble, aren't we? We're getting in deep here because none of us are this holy. None of us. And in Revelation, it tells us that anybody who doesn't make it into heaven is going to a place called hell and it describes it in one place like this. It says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night torment. Oh, surely that's just Old Testament, right? Well, that's Revelation. Well, what about Jesus? Man, we run to Jesus, and I agree with that, but listen to what Jesus says. He said it in Luke 12. He says, but I 
will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You see, there is good reason for human beings to be afraid of the Lord. All-powerful creator, holy judge of all sin and everyone, and he holds your eternal destiny in his hands. Who are you absolutely dependent on for your eternal destiny? If you depend on you, you're going to hell forever. So, man, something, he has to do something. And you see, this... This is the, the concept I want you to see here when we're talking about fearing the Lord. The Lord is more important than anyone or anything else in your life. When it comes to talk about your eternal destiny, he is more important than anyone or anything else in your life. Nobody, nothing else can rescue you. You can't rescue yourself. Only he can rescue you. Now, it's at this point when we understand this that, that we have reason to be afraid of God. He is holy. We are not holy. We deserve to be judged by him and spend an eternity separate from him, being tormented. When we finally get that, this is where God's love really comes into play. It's in this context that we start to understand God's love. It's in this context that we start to understand God's grace. We start to understand his mercy and his working in our lives. But you know, if you don't have this fear of the Lord aspect of who he is and what that means in my life, the love of God is not nearly a, such a big deal. The grace of God is not nearly such a big deal. It's interesting, I've seen on, on TV and on the internet a few times in places where I've seen people, celebrities, who I'd never expected to hear say anything about God, talk about, oh, this is God's grace in your life. Or God loves you and he's for you. And, and boy, that was kind of refreshing. But the reality is, is that they are, they're not starting with the fear of the Lord. Contact. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I losing here? Does it make sense? So it's, it's a shallow, it's an empty love, it's empty, and it's not a biblical one, it's not a real one. The, we understand God's love because we know what we deserved. We know where we were headed, and so God's love means so much to us. God's grace means so much to us. And so the question then, we, well, let's, let's talk about the gospel then. Let's talk about the gospel. The good news. The good news is even though we are deserving of that from God, and he is a God who will judge. For God, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved us so much that even though we were sinners and deserving of judgment, that he himself became a man, the man Jesus Christ, God in human form, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross, and as he does, he, by the way, willingly dies on the cross, and as he does, God places the penalty for all of my sins on him as he dies there. The penalty for all of your sins as he dies there. 
And he pays those penalties in full, dies, rises again three days later, and then says to us, amazing, this is what I'm saying, the love of God, the grace of God. He says, hey, all you have to do is acknowledge that you are that sinner in need of a Savior, and then place your faith in me that I did die for you. I did pay the penalty of your sins. I did rise again. And, and you come to me and just give your life over to me because you can't fix it. You just got to give in to me. Trust me. Believe in me. And when we do that, and if you haven't done that, you need to do that. And when we do that, he forgives every sin we ever have or ever will commit. He, he comes to live inside of us and begins working in our lives. And when this life is over, we go to be with him in heaven. Now, as is that an amazing love? That amazing grace like we sang about? Sure it is. See, this, this context of fearing God puts that into where it needs to be for us. Now, but once we've received Christ, now I'm a Christian. Am I still supposed to be afraid of God? It's a little bit of an enigma, isn't it? I would say this to you. When fearing God motivates you to get right with God, you no longer need to be afraid of God because now you belong to God. Now, hang on, we're not, we still gotta fear the Lord and understand what that means. But we don't have to be afraid of him because God already poured out his wrath toward me on Jesus. You get that? Everything that I deserve he did to his son, Jesus. Because Jesus and the Father, they loved me. And so I don't have to be afraid like that anymore. So what's the deal? I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you now belong to him. You were his enemy. You were on the other side, but he took you, reconciled you to himself. And so, yeah, we aren't afraid like that anymore. And yet he says, do what? You belong to me. Glorify me. Glorify me. And what we start to understand is that does God still hold my eternity in his hands? Does he? He still does. And I'm safe and secure in him. He has saved me forever. He loves me. He provides for me. He works in my life, helps me to become more like Jesus. He, he um, has given me meaning in life, and it's something going to matter forever, and on and on I can go. The same place we reached when we were considering being afraid of God because of our sin and his holiness, we arrive at here, and that's this. The Lord is more important than anyone or anything else in your life. You may have heard to say for Christians, it's we are fear the Lord, we are to reverence him, right? Have awe for him. And what we're talking about, those words can kind of just spill out, oh yeah, reverence, awe. No, what we're talking about is that he is the most important in my life. Nothing is more important to me than he is. No one is more important toward me than he is. That is a proper fear of the Lord for the Christian. And, and this is seen in, uh, remember the story of Abraham. And by the way, if they, folks, I, if I'm going long, I'm going a little long today. I haven't preached for four weeks. I've got to make up for it. 
okay? Um, so I'm, if you need to leave, feel free, okay? But if, if, just hang in there for a little bit if you can. Abraham, uh, God said, take your only son Isaac and go and sacrifice him. Put him to death as an offering to me. And we know the story, and Abraham was going to obey God, and he went to do that. And as he began to, to take his son's life, God stops him, okay, and provides a different, a substitute for that. But it's, the words of God are, are recorded in Genesis twenty-two twelve. 12. It says that he said to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what's the next two words? Fear God. How do I know? Since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. How do I know you fear God? Because it's obvious that God is more important to you than anyone else or anything else in your life because you're willing to sacrifice your own son. Do you see that? God is the one who set up that idea of fearing. Okay? Then our response needs to be because God is more important to me than anyone or anything else in my life, I surrender my whole life to him. I surrender the big picture to him. And I surrender this area and this area and this area and all the areas of my life in specific ways. Well, how do we do this? How do we get this fear of the Lord? Because, man, as as I worked on this this week in the scripture, and I I see that there's a lot of ways and some big ways and important ways where I, I do a, I fear God. I do properly. But man, as I'm thinking about preaching, I start thinking, yeah, you know, the Spirit says, yeah, Walt, but what about this area? Well, could we not talk about that one? And what about this area? What about these decisions? I found that, wow, there are lots of places where I'm not really living and thinking like God's the most important thing here. I'm not properly fearing him in this parts of my life. Well, how do we learn to fear him? Well, in some instructions that God gave in Deuteronomy for Israel, when they eventually got a king, he talked to this about something the king was supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, he says, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to uh, fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So two things that we learn about fearing God from this passage, and the first is that we are going to discover what we need about fearing God, which is a starting place for wisdom from his word. That's what he says, right? That's what it says. And the second thing is this. Learning to fear the Lord properly is a lifelong process. How many days of his life is he supposed to work on this? So that means after 30 years, he still needs to read so he can still learn to fear. Okay, it's a lifelong process. So I, I know some of you here today, we come in and I talk about fearing the Lord and you go, oh, I know I don't fear the Lord, I'm a miserable worm and I'm, I'm just so burdened. Stop that. No, no, no. If you've received Christ as Savior, you've already dealt with that first fear of the Lord. And just, it's a process, lifelong. But every time you, you want to become aware of it, Wait a minute, is God first and foremost here? It'll start to revolutionize how you make some decisions. And, do you need wisdom? You need wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we're talking about learning to live 
as though the Lord is more important than anyone or anything else in your life. And we gotta quit. No, we gotta quit. No, that's, hang on, this, I'll, I'll put some stuff on Facebook for you. It's just, just information benefits of fearing the Lord, okay? All right. So the Lord is more important than anyone or anything else in your life. So what do we do today? What do we do about this? Well, I would say today, if you haven't received Christ as Savior, that's what you need to do. First and foremost, you have reason to be afraid. Your life could end before this day is over and you find yourself in hell forever. So you need to receive Christ as Savior. And we'd like to help you with that. If you've already received Christ as Savior, and then, then obviously you need to be working on this. He's more important in my life than anything else. So let's do this. Let's just bow our heads here for a moment. Bow our heads and, and don't be looking around. Let me ask this question first. And it would be a bold answer for you if you answer it. Is there anybody here today that would say, you know, I, I don't think I have ever once and for all received Jesus as my Savior. I haven't done that. And I, I can see I need to. If there's anybody here like that today, with nobody else looking around, just me, would you just raise your hand and say, that's me, I, I need to receive Jesus. Anybody? All right, I do see that hand. Yep, thank you. All right. Here's my challenge to you to keep your heads bowed. Just, just between you and God here and think about this. Three things I want you to do. Three simple things this week. The first one is I want you to think, what do I need to do or change this week to remind myself that the Lord needs to be the most important part of my life. What do I need to do? And you may say, gee, I need to get up 10 minutes earlier and read some Bible, <laughs> right? Or I need to set aside some time at lunch to get in the Word or to pray, whatever. So think, what do I need to do this week to make sure I remember that I need to fear God properly? And then the second thing I want you to think, just, just you can choose more than one if you want, but just choose one thing Think about it right now, this week. What one thing do you change that you're going to do differently because you're properly fearing God, because you decided he is more important to me than this other thing? What is that? And, and then make that change. And the third thing, very simple, I want you to begin an ongoing conversation with God about what it means to properly fear him in your life. Begin an ongoing conversation with God and I'd encourage you to begin the same conversation with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. And oh God, I, as I just described earlier, I, I'm so grateful that you, you taught me to fear you and brought me to salvation. And I'm thankful, Father, for those ways you worked in my life where I do fear you properly. But oh God, I openly confess to you again those areas of my life where I find myself not fearing you properly, not acknowledging that you're the most important part, not just a part, the most important person in every decision, the places where I'm not doing that. Oh, God, please work on me. 
And all of us the same, Father. We want to honor you. We need your wisdom. We want to fear you properly. Please teach us to do so. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, God bless you. You are dismissed. I'd love to talk to you about uh, anything that uh, related to the sermon today. Next week, Proverbs chapter 8. You're dismissed.